Now, I want to continue from what I, I spoke about last week. And last week I spoke about a very profound theme. And I brought the Akedah, where Avram Avinu brought Yitzchok to be sacrificed, what it really meant. You know, so I, I, I want to elaborate on that and go into <clears throat> the repercussions of that event, <clears throat> which in many ways is fascinating. And that will bring us into the, in, in a certain sense, the difficulties and the trials of the Mashiach Ben Yosef. Because we really see what is going on. And it explains a great deal. <clears throat> now, last week I brought in a very important concept, uh, and that was Rashi. You know, <clears throat> and Rashi in, 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 uh, in Pusik, uh, where is it? Yud Beis. Well, Perik, uh, it's, uh, it's the Akedah Perik. And there's a Rashi that refers to a Pasuk, which I mentioned. <clears throat> uh, the Rabban Shum says, after Avram Avinu was about to slaughter his son, and didn't, because the Malach said, don't do it. Right? Okay. So the Malach says, in the name of God, Ki ato yodati ki elokim ato. For now I know that you are God-fearing because you didn't withhold uh, your son from being slaughtered. So obviously the question is, what do you mean now I know? You mean God didn't know before? Okay. So Rashi brings down a very important idea. It's a very profound idea. And it explains a great deal of what has to happen in the end of time. So Rashi says, now I'm translating into English, for now I know. So it doesn't mean now I know, uh, whereas before I didn't know. No, it doesn't mean that. But it means this. From now I have what to answer to the Sutton, the prosecuting attorney, angel, and to the Umus Ha'olam, and to the nations of the world. What do you mean you have what to answer? Because Hatameim, they wonder... Mahi, what is the love that you bear the Jewish people? Right? This is what it says. And therefore, God says, I now know I have an answer, a response, an argument, right, to them. That I see that Avram Avinu is a God-fearing person, and that is why I love them so much. That's what Rashi says. Now, I explained, which is very important, uh, that what exactly is the discussion here between the Sultan, the nations of the world, and God, vis-a-vis -vis why the Rebbe loves the Jewish people. <clears throat> so the idea is this. Here is what the real meaning of this discussion. I mentioned that everything that is in this world the ultimate consequences of everybody is how they acted. That's the concept called din, or justice. In other words, everything that happens is a concept of cause and effect. 
what you do is exactly what happens to you in the reverse. It's called measure for measure. And we know that's a universal principle. That is how God created the world based on that principle. So the Sultan says to God, he says, I don't understand. If everything is based on justice, cause and effect, right, which is called din or justice, right? So why do you love them so much? Because they don't deserve this. In other words, what the Sultan was really saying uh, is that really they sin a great deal. Well, if they sin, they don't deserve to be redeemed. But I see that you're always doing actions that will redeem them. What's going on here? They don't deserve redemption based on their acts. And the Sultan presents what he is supposed to present because he is the angel, right, uh, that defends justice. So that's what he says. Why are you redeeming them? And that I mentioned is called Hanogus HaYichud. It is the actions that God takes, right, to save the Jews and to allow them to be in the future world, Oilem You see? Even though, basically, they don't deserve it. So the Satan is saying, I don't stand. Everything is based on din, justice. So why are you always taking actions to save the Jews? You see? This is what the Satan says. Now, it's not just the Satan that says this, right? It's also the nations of the world. Because they're hoping... <clears throat> right? I mean, their end of it is, well, if God is saving the Jews, even though they don't deserve it, right, then maybe he'll save us, even though we don't deserve it, right? Because we also have a problem. We sin, right? And God doesn't save the Gentiles, you know. They will be destroyed in, certain, in many ways unless they deserve to be saved and enter the future world, you see? So why don't we have the Anhogas HaYichot, this attribute or actions of God where He saves you, He redeems you even though you don't deserve it, He will make sure that this happens, right? Why, can't, why, why won't He do it to us, the Gentiles? That's their end of the bargain, you see. And now, like I said, they're hoping that if He saves the Jews and redeems the Jews even though they don't deserve it, well then He'll do it to the Goyim, to the non-Jews. So God answers both. It's because I see that they are God-fearing. And that really is an answer to the Satan and also to the nations of the world. Now, to the Satan, it's this. The logic of the argument is this, right? The reason why I love them, God is saying, and therefore the Anogas HaYichud, that attribute to say that guarantees the existence of the Jews in the future world, right? Is because they do deserve it. Why? Because I see that no matter what I do to them, right, they are loyal to me. They are devoted to me. That's what I see. That even though on one end they don't deserve the future world, but they don't want to abandon me. If they don't want to abandon me, no matter what I do, even though I come across as irrational, and I spoke about all of that last week, right? So then how can I abandon them? Now that's a legal justification, a legal argument why God loves the Jews. 
and will redeem them to be in the future world. That's what he's saying. In other words, no matter what I do to them, they will not abandon, they will not give me up. So therefore, I will not abandon them, measure for measure. That is justice, you see. That's what God says to the Sultan, you see. That's very important. It means the measure or the actions that God takes to save the Jews and to redeem them for the future world is justified legally, you see, and that quiets the Sultan. Very important idea, quiets the Sultan. Now, what about the nations of the world? Because that's also an answer. Because what God says is, look, even if the Jews do not observe my commandments, but in the end, the Jews at a certain level do fear God because they're a peaceful nation. You know, Jews, even if they don't observe the commandments, they're peaceful. They don't make war. They don't slaughter people. They don't butcher people, kill them. Whereas Gentiles, they're always warring. I mean, if you take a look at the history of mankind, it's basically a history of butchery, of slaughter, you see, where one nation wants to conquer another nation. This is always what's going on. I mean, was there, there's hardly ever a time in history, right, world history, where the nations are not slaughtering each other, basically for no reason. What's the reason? No nation has the justification to take another nation, right, for tribute, for money, or for conquest, or for slaves, or whatever. There's no justification for that. That is an incredible evil, you see. And the non-Jews are always doing that. I mean, just take a look, which we know. Look at what Christianity has done for the last 2,000 years. And I explained that uh, one or two shurim ago, how many Jews died at the hands of Christians, whether it be the pogroms, right? Whether it be the Inquisition, expulsions, holocausts, right? And so on. Or being burnt at the stake in Spain. And these guys just don't stop slaughtering Jews. So that is also because they fear God in the sense that they do the commandments of God, even if it's not always because they want to observe the religion. Because they realize that there's such a thing as morality or ethics. These are values. So based on that, they are upstanding. And in many ways, they are righteous between man and man, whereas the non-Jews are not. You see, so it's really also an answer to the Gentiles why the Hanogasei Yichud, this attribute of guarantee, redemption, basically applies to the Jews and not to anybody else. But in any case, this is what we see that God needs a justification to activate that series of actions that he does to guarantee the Jews uh, redemption in the future world. Uh, and that is the reason of the Akedah. And that's what God wanted to demonstrate. That Avraham Avinu, even though everything I did for him, right, I told him to sacrifice his son, even though I said from his son will come the Jewish people, which is mutually exclusive, illogical, right? That's what I said. He still is going to slaughter his son 
against all logic, you see. And I mentioned also very important, that is why the Akkad is the last test of Avram Avinu, you see, because this requirement of being loyal to God, devoted to God, even though God comes across as irrational, or I should say appears irrational, right, this will happen or be necessary at the end of time for this devotion and loyalty. Because at that point in time, right, the Jews really will not deserve the redemption because of their sins, and I need a justification. So therefore, just like it's the last test of Avram Avinu, it will also be the last situation or circumstances at the end of time. In any case, so this is a very profound concept. Now, <clears throat> what this also does, it leads to an incredible situation, especially with the Mashiach Ben Yosef. <clears throat> and you will see that it's actually alluded to in the Akedah. What is that? Well, there's a Yalkut Shemoni, which is a collection of Midrashim, fam very famous uh, Sefer book, right? And the Yalkut Shemoni says the following. It is in, it's in Yeshayahu, section 499. And it talks there all about Sheikh Ben Yosef. I once mentioned this a long time ago, you know, but I, I want to now interpret this whole understanding based on this principle that God needs a justification for judgment, for dinam, right? Certainly at the end of time. So it says here that God said in the end of time, your children or your people will have sinned grievously. And that requires, you know, that you will have to suffer. Now, what does that mean? Now, here's the problem, you see. Because once you come to the end of time, which is right before Mashiach comes, you see, then God has to really activate this Hanhogo, this series of actions that rehabilitates the Jews, that guarantees their entry into the future world. He has to activate that. But in order to do that, you see, then he has to demand loyalty, even though he appears to be irrational, just like Avram Avino. But the question is, who is going to bear, you know, who's going to bear that task? So God, the Rabbanisham, is talking to the Mashiach ben Yosef, and the Medrash calls him Ephraim, Mashiach Tzidki, Ephraim, which we know, of course, is uh, the son of uh, Yosef, uh, the righteous Messiah. That's the title of Mashiach ben Yosef. So this is what the Rabbanisham says. I'm going to need somebody that's going to be subjected to unbelievable pain, suffering, agony, anguish, you see, at the same time as I come across to that person or I come across, I appear to be completely irrational. And that person is going to have to be incredibly devoted and loyal to me no matter what I do to him. 
And that will be my justification at the end of time to save the Jews. So the Rabbani Shalom is talking to the Mashiach Ben Yosef. And he says, are you willing to accept this in order for me to activate the Hanogas HaYichud? Right? That attribute of saving the Jews, rehabilitating them, even though they, they don't deserve it. Uh, so the Mashiach Ben Yosef, God is he's asking him, why? Because he needs that. He needs somebody to accept in a supreme way unbelievable suffering and remaining loyal to God. So the Mashiach Ben Yosef says, yes, I will makabel, I will accept this task, you see. And not only will I accept the task, but I'm hoping that my remaining loyal to you, no matter what you dump on me, right, is going to allow all the souls of Israel to survive in the future world. Uh, and not only all the souls of Israel who lived at my time, which of course is the end of time, but all those people who lived at my time and who died before the redemption. Or all those souls that lived in the world from Odomorishan, until the end of time, I'm we're looking at right close to six thousand years. Every neshama that needs your intervention to survive, I will be the. I hate to use the word guinea pig. I will be the uh, the symbol, you know, the sacrifice, right, uh, uh, for all these Jews, which of course is awesome, you know. So then it says that. So what the Bosham did is he took a yoke of iron, oil basel, and he puts it on the neck of the Mashiach ben Yosef. And the Mashiach ben Yosef bends down because it's unbelievably heavy. And the Mashiach ben Yosef starts screaming. And it says his scream even went up to heaven where he said, right, hey, I'm just a bus of a dumb. I'm just made of flesh and blood. I can't take this. In other words, I didn't realize it involves such unbelievable suffering. You know, in other words, that's the circumstance that you've put me into, and I have to remain loyal in this circumstance. I didn't realize that. So God says, but you promised, you said you would accept this. So the Mashiach Ben Yosef says, okay, you know, if I said it, then I will accept it. And God says, well, I myself will also suffer in a certain sense that I will not even sit on my throne as long as you are accepting this tremendous suffering. This is the Medrash. It's an incredible Medrash. Now, we now understand this Medrash from a different perspective. What is the perspective? The perspective is, right, that God needs a justification to activate that attribute of saving the Jews. That's what he needs, you see. And um, that's why he needs, that's why he's arguing with Mashiach Ben Yosef, but you said you would accept it, because he needs somebody that will do something as great as the Akedah, because that's what's required to save the Jews. And therefore, we now realize that this individual, Sheikh Ben Yosef, right, 
has accepted an unbelievable uh, self-sacrifice. Now, we don't know what that is, but whatever it is, you see from the Medrash, you see from this discussion, that Mishiach Yeshua himself held that it's beyond belief what he's got to go through for the Jews to survive. Now we do see. Now, in order to gain some credence or some type of understanding, what can that be? And that's what I also I want to present. <clears throat> you see. And what that is is the following. I mentioned this quite a while ago. The key idea of the spirituality of the Mashiach ben Yosef is his wisdom, his chokhmah. I mentioned that at the end of the Chumash, it says, right? The firstborn of his ox. This is the last parsha, Zeisabrocha, when Moshe Rabbeinu is giving a brocha to all the, all the nations, I should say all the tribes. And he says, by the tribe of Yosef, that the firstborn of his ox, Hodeloi, beauty is his. Who is that referred to? Well, the firstborn of the ox, and the ox is the symbol of Yosef, is Mashiach bin Yosef. And it says, Hodeloi, beauty is his. And the Rekani Re'em, and the horns of the Re'em, Kaunov, that this ox, right, doesn't have the horns of an ox, which are short and stout. It has the horns of a re'em, which apparently was magnificent, you know, to look at. So this ox, which represents Mashiach ben Yosef, has unbelievable wisdom, because the horns emanate from the head, right? And they are used as weapons. So therefore, the wisdom of the Mashiach ben Yosef, this emanates from his head, right? And they will be the weapons against the nations of the world. Because it says, Ubehem and with these things, which means his horns, will be weapons, right? They will go the nations of the world. Uh, so therefore we see that the major spirituality or the uniqueness of this individual, Sheikh Ben Yosef, right, are what's called symbolically or metaphorically his horns. And his horns is the messianic light. That is the Om Mashiach, you see. Uh, and that is his spiritual uniqueness. So that's very important. We now understand what his essential spiritual essence is. Tremendous analytical and cognitive abilities. And apparently it is so great that it will actually influence the nations of the world because it is the messianic light, <clears throat> you see. Therefore, if you want to make this person suffer, right, then what you need to do, right, is deny him his talent, his ability to do this, to think, to come up with this kind of stuff, you see. <clears throat> and obviously, if you block the Mashiach ben Yosef's ability to think, Right? and to come up with tremendous spiritual insights, you will have caused this person unbelievable pain. Tremendous. Because you are directly interfering with the essence of this person, you see. Uh, and he, of course, will not understand. 
He doesn't know he's Mashiach ben Yosef. And he realizes he has great talents, but he has no idea of why he's being blocked. Now, how the Rabbi Hashem does that is unknown. But clearly there are many things, there are many ways he could do that. I mean, you could talk about physical disease, mental illness, whatever. But that is, will create an enormous amount of uh, pain and suffering, agony and anguish, right, of the Mashiach ben Yosef. And the truth is that's exactly what the Mosham does, you see. So we now understand the Mashiach ben Yosef, his uniqueness is what's called the Kani Re'im, the horns of the Re'im, which is a metaphor for his ability to access unbelievable divine truths. And the Rabbanisham blocks that, you see. Now, is this true? I mean, it makes a lot of sense, you know. And of course, to the Mashiach ben Yosef, it is completely irrational. It doesn't make sense. You know, imagine taking a guy, you know, to you, just to use an example, let's say Einstein, or just to use a, a secular example, right? And all of a sudden, the guy can't think. You see? And he knows he's a brilliant thinker. Or imagine taking a guy like, let's say, Beethoven, which is one of the greatest musicians who ever lived. And all of a sudden, he cannot compose. You see? Uh, and this goes on and on for years, you see? And whatever he can compose is not completely blocked. He's magnificent, you see? So for whatever reason, he just can't put it together, you see? Let's assume he's got, you know, uh, incredible melodies going around in his head, but some, for some reason, his brain does not allow him to put it together in a composition, you see? Therefore, that will produce unbelievable pain. Or, to use a Jewish example, imagine you have the Vilna going. What an unbelievable mind. Photographic memory, right? I remember I once read, you know, if you, ever, if you remember Ripley's Believe It or Not, that's a column that they used to uh, write down the things that are true but are unbelievable. You know, so one said that the Vilna going actually said that the Vilna Goyen mastered over 20, or knew by heart, over 25,000 books. I remember I once read that. <clears throat> and he was. Imagine taking somebody like the Vilna Goyen, right? And he thinks, right? And he knows he's brilliant. He's got a photographic memory. He's got an incredible insight that to analyze. And all of a sudden... He develops, you know, ADHD, you know, uh, where he can't think. He can't, let's assume, he can't sit and think, you know, and he's always running around, even as an adult. And he asks himself, what in the world's going on here? Why is God doing this to me? It makes no sense. And this guy is the Vilna Goyen, or he has the capacity of the Vilna Goyen. So could you imagine what he feels? the suffering that he goes through every day, you see, that's the Yisurin of Mashiach ben Yosef. Now, does anybody say this? Yes. There is a sefer called Neflois HaYehudi that was written by the Yehudi HaKodesh from Pashisko, one of the great uh, 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 fundamental, foundational Hasidic Rebbes from Poland, I think. Any case, so 
he says the following in the sefer called Nefois HaYehudi, you know, which is an incredible sefer. In any case, here's what he says. He says, if you want to understand the suffering of the Mashiach, Ben Yosef, here's what it is. And he actually describes it. He says, Mashiach Ben Yosef, he sits down and he starts to learn, right? So by the end of the day, he's acquired a certain amount of knowledge. And then he wakes up the next day and he completely forgot everything he learned. Everything. Or he just remembers a smattering. So what does he have to do now? It's very frustrating. So he's got to now learn it again. Let's say Sunday, he forgets. On Monday, he's got to learn it again on Monday, right? And by Monday night, he completely forgets it again. So he's got to start over the whole process on Tuesday. And this continues week after week, month after month, year after year. It's unbelievable. And what do you think this guy's thinking? He can't believe what's going on. Because during the day when he's thinking about, you know, spiritual insights, he has tremendous insights. But by the time the day is over, he's always a beginner. He's always starting over again in whatever blockage that God did. Now, this is completely irrational because it doesn't make sense. You see, especially if this individual is unique in his ability to think. This is what he writes, the Yehudi HaKadosh, you see. So he says that this is the suffering of Mashiach ben Yosef. Now, we now understand, to us it makes, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because that is his uniqueness, you see. And the, what's interesting also is not only is Mashiach ben Yosef, you know, suffers in this way, right? And it's irrational. And what's the test of this person? Is not to abandon God. To remain Jewish, in a sense, to remain religious. Even though God is acting to him in a way that appears completely irrational, <clears throat> and it is irrational, unless you understand what's going on. And the Mashiach ben Yosef doesn't, you see. So his job is no matter what God throws at him, He's got to do what God wants, which is to do the mitzvahs, you see? And what we have to understand is not only does the Mashiach ben Yosef have this tremendous ability in Torah, in spiritual insights, but he's an incredible spiritual person. He has unbelievable ability in dvekus, in being attached and cling to God. And somehow God interferes with that also. Because the Vekas, attachment to God, is tied with learning Torah. <clears throat> and just like God blocks him from knowing Torah, he also blocks his ability to attach himself to God. <clears throat> so we are looking at a guy, as they say in Yiddish, is Ois Mensch. He doesn't know what's going on, makes no sense, and his agony continues for years. Why? Because the test is, Will you abandon me or not? And I need you not to abandon me in order that your loyalty will allow me to rehabilitate the Jews and get him in the future world. You see, so this person who's a real person, 
live, right? Uh, he is the manifestation of the Mashiach ben Yosef that accepted this agreement 6,000 years ago because the discussion between God and the Mashiach ben Yosef happened at the beginning of creation. You see, obviously, that God was telling him what will be. See, could you imagine? That is the suffering of this individual based on the discussion and based on the fact that God needs to justify to the Sultan and the nations of the world the legal reason why, you see, you had the Akedah and why the Mashiach ben Yosef suffered so greatly. And this also tells us something else. Rabbi Yechanan, the, uh, the Gmon Sanhedrin says that there was a number of Amoroim that said, Let the Mashiach come, and they're referring to whoever it is, Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David, let him come, and I do not want to see him. It means I don't want to be alive before the Mashiach comes, or even when he comes. The question is, why would they say that? You know, why would they say they don't want to be alive at that time? And the answer is, uh, because the essential difficulty at the end of time is how do you justify redeeming and rehabilitating the Jewish people? So it requires God appearing irrational, right? And the Jews, or whoever is picked for that, cannot abandon God, no matter how much suffering that person goes through. You see? So they said, we don't want this. You know, I don't want to suffer this kind of pain because it's terrible to suffer this type of pain. And this type of pain is going to be required at the end of time in order to justify God's, right, redeeming the Jewish people. See? Makes perfect sense what they said. But the problem is, Mashiach ben Yosef, he agreed to this 5,700 and 82 years ago. That's the, that's the problem, you see. So we now understand what is going on. That he is the man. He is the uh, sacrifice that is allowing God in many ways to bring uh, the, the redemption. Yeah. He has been specifically appointed or assigned this task. Now, it is very interesting that you actually... This is actually alluded to in Rashi by the Akedah, you see. Because when, when the, the Malach told Avraham Avinu, do not harm him, nothing, right? So it says all of a sudden he lifted his uh, eyes, Avraham lifted his eyes, and he saw and behold there was an ayo, a ram, a cher, another ram, nechaz b'svach, that was entangled in the brush, in the thicket. That's what he saw. How was he entangled in the thicket? The Karnov, with his horns. You see? So then Avraham Avinu goes and takes that isle, and he offers it as an oiler, Tachas Benoi, instead of his son. What does that mean? What do you mean? First of all, uh, it's an isle, right? And you know what Rashi says about that isle? Rashi says that isle, Rashi says, was waiting there for 6,000 years for, from Sheshit Simei Rashi says that in Yud Gimel. 
He says, Muchenhoya, that aisle was prepared for this task to be a substitute for Yitzchak from Sheshis Yimebreshis, from the beginning of creation. Uh, now, I don't see why God needed that. You could have had an aisle who just found his way right next to the Akedah. Why would God need an aisle that's been there for 6,000 years? You see? And also, what do we care? You know, that it was, uh, what he called, entangled in the brush, right? With its horns. What's the difference how it was entangled, right? So um, the fact that it was entangled, or rather that it was there for 6,000 years, is the metaphor for Mashiach ben Yosef. That's who it was. No, it's Mashiach ben Yosef, the deal that he made with God was what? Was 5,782 years ago at the beginning of creation. That's when it happened. So this aisle that represents the Mashiach ben Yosef, he is waiting 5,782 years ago. That aisle metaphorically is the Mashiach ben Yosef. Makes sense. And how was he entangled? He was entangled with his horns. Why? Because his horns, right, I mentioned, is the essential spirituality of the Mashiach ben Yosef. That's his chokmah. That's his incredible wisdom. And that's exactly the suffering, right, that Mashiach ben Yosef suffers. I mean, it's amazing when you think about that, that the concept that it's Mashiach ben Yosef, right, entangled in his horns, right, and he's been there since Bracious. Of course, that refers to Mashiach ben Yosef, metaphorically, you see. And Rashi says this. So therefore, we see all of this is alluding to what I said. Very important idea, you see, that this, therefore, we see that the, the major individual that is allowing this to happen is the Mashiach ben Yosef. And it says, Tachas benoi, instead of his son, because the Mashiach ben Yosef He's the one chosen not to abandon God no matter how much he suffers. And that will allow the redemption of the Jewish people. Just like that aisle, that ram, also was a substitute for Yitzchak. So the Mashiach ben Yosef sacrifices himself, right, for the Jews to be redeemed. Uh, that is a very important idea. Now to show you, you know, the precision of this concept, in that medrash of Yalka Shemayni, it continues. And then all of a sudden, it says, the Ovis Ha'olam, the patriarchs of the world, and since it says Ha'olam, it means all the tzaddikim. It says here that they start praising the Mashiach ben Yosef. Yeah. And they say this. Uh, they say that what you did is unheard of. What you, this is what they say in the medrash. What you did, what you went through, has never happened before. It has never happened before you or after you, the type of suffering that you've gone through. Now the question is, what are they talking about? Tzadikim <clears throat> suffer. In fact, they're called the Sevli Chiloim, those that bear suffering as a kapora for the iniquity of the Jewish people. You see. <clears throat> so they realize that, so when they say that Mashiach ben Yosef went through suffering that has never happened before, and they praise him, they say, what you did is unbelievable. You see, what are they talking about? Because they also suffer many times 
let's say, an atonement for the Jewish people. So in what way has the Mashiach ben Yosef suffered that has never been done before, you see, even by them? And the idea is what you now understand. Because the Mashiach ben Yosef's abilities is something that we do not understand. Because remember, he's Mashiach ben Yosef. And what he is suffering from is he cannot access the unbelievable amount of insight, spirituality, that he's privy to. He's Mashiach ben Yosef. So could you imagine what I mentioned, that he learns these insights, then he forgets them at the end of the day, and this happens every single day for decades, because it's almost a lifetime until he's freed that he's going through this. You see? So that's what they mean. It's we, we, in other words, what they say, we've suffered, obviously, to help erase the sins of the Jewish people. Fine. But this type of suffering, where a man doesn't just suffer, but he's denied such unparalleled spirituality, never happened before. Like I'd say, just think of the Vilna Goin, where he can't learn. That doesn't happen. You know, it could be that the Vilna Goin learns, and he also he has a terrible pneumonia, right? Or he goes to the hospital often. Fine. So the suffering is external to what he can do, his spiritual gifts. But what happens if the suffering destroys his spiritual gifts, right? And we're talking about the Mashiach ben Yosef, which is spiritual gifts which, which, which we cannot even understand. Could you imagine the agony of this person? So that makes complete sense, you see, what they're saying. It all fits in beautifully. Once we understand that the reason why he suffers this way, right, is to be the sacrifice, right, in order to allow God to have an argument against the Satan to activate you see, the attribute of justice or redemption. And therefore, God needs the Mashiach ben Yosef to do this. And this type of suffering where a person knows his gifts and yet is denied on a daily basis for decades the ability to move forward, whether it be in thinking, knowledge, learning, or even in dvekas, because that's part of the learning, right? Never happened before. I mean, people suffer externally, right? Secondarily, like I said, you know, all of a sudden they're incredibly poor, Right? And they and and it's and they, and they, and, they, and they, it's hard to learn whatever, or they are sick, they have tremendous amount of you know problems and so on. Okay, that's sovli chiloim, where they suffer, right? And they do it for the sake of the Jewish people. You see, yeah, I remember there's a Gemara where I think it's Reb uh, Reb Shimon Ben Eloza, you know, who's a tremendous person. And he was always sick. And his wife, you know, like, okay, what can you do? So one day she walks into the room where he is, and he's on his bed, right? And he's very sick. And all of a sudden she hears him saying, Boyu oilai yisurin shal Come upon me, the yisurin, and that I will use as an atonement for the Jewish people. So she couldn't believe what was happening. She realized... Her husband 
was welcoming. He was inviting these Yisurin to help the Jewish people have an atonement. So Sadiqim do have this, you see. But he was still an unbelievable Amora. Rab Shimon you see, you see. But we're looking at a person, Mashiach bin Yosef, that is completely blocked, thwarted, of unbelievable spiritual gifts, you see. And this we now understand is what the Arcada was for, like I said, in order to allow God, and it says, which is very important, that God has to actually answer to Sutton when God says, and now I know. So God says, right, that now I know, which means now I have an answer to the Sutton. Why would God need to answer the Sutton? Because the Sutton says, justice does not demand what you are doing. So how could you do it? Why do you love them so much? Well, you want to rehabilitate and redeem them. So God, therefore, is in a certain way obligated. I mean, not literally, but he, he, he volunteered. He obligated himself because that's how he created the world, that that's what he does. He always looks at justice. In the end, it's all about what you deserve, you know. So therefore, he needs this argument, right? And that's what it says. You die, now, I have a pischoin peh. I actually have an argument now. You see, why you deserve, the Jewish people deserves to be redeemed. In any case, this is what we see, that the, one of the major figures that are, enable the Jews to be redeemed with his Hanhaga, these actions, is the fact that Mashiach ben Yosef goes through unimaginable suffering, as we see from the Medrash. And that enables God to have that legal argument. And then it says, by the way, in the Medrash, that because of what Mashiach ben Yosef does, so it says, which is interesting, it says that God raises him to a, an unparalleled height of reward. Because if you think about it, what he did saved the Jewish people. Saved them. Because if the Mashiach ben Yosef did not do it, then where would God get the loyalty of that type of individual, of that type of, you know, suffering where the person refuses to abandon God. So therefore what the Mashiach ben Yosef does is he is responsible for the salvation of the Jewish people. Now that's an unbelievable merit. And it says in the Medish that God raises him in a way which is unparalleled because of what he did. So he does get, of course, the rewards and so on. Besides, he's Mashiach ben Yosef. You know, when all of a sudden it's unblocked and he now can assume his real identity, you see. And one of the things that we see, which is worthwhile saying, one of the things that we see from the Akedah, you'll notice how the Akedah ends. It doesn't end where all of a sudden, you know, Avram Avinu, uh, you know, uh, his knife slips out of his hand or whatever. No. It ends supernaturally with there's actually a malach that says don't cut his neck. Don't slaughter him. That's supernatural, you see. And that's the way it ends. So it's the same idea. At the end of time, this world will be redeemed in a supernatural way that we have not even 
we cannot even begin to understand what God will do. And with all those miracles that happen, and believe me, we all know, those ten plagues was beyond belief. And among the greatest of the plagues, of course, is Kriyas Yamsuf. What happened at Yamsuf was just, it's, it's not to be believed. Because it's not just that the sea split. The sea split this 12 sections. Each section you could see through, through it. It grew fruit out of the water so people could eat as they traveled through the sea. Hey, the miracles are just astounding. Uh-uh, you see. So that's what happened at the uh, Egypt. And what's going to happen at the final redemption, again, we, we cannot even imagine what God has in store, the miraculous, supernatural events that God will do at the end of time. And this will last for hundreds of years, you see. Because what God wants in the end, He doesn't just want to end the world, and then, well, either you go to Gehenna, or you go to Gan Eden, or whatever. No. He wants this world itself to be a utopia, which is interesting. That's an important concept. Because when you think about it, it could have been that the Bansham just ends the world, right? Everybody dies, right? And you get judged, final day of judgment. And either you get uh, Gehenna, whatever, or you get Ganadin, or whatever, the reward. No. You know, it ends where the world itself becomes a utopia, it ends that the world becomes a messianic era. So, Oilam Hazer, this world becomes Ganadin. That's really what it is. Because that's what the Russian wants. He wants to show you that really this world is Ganadin, except for the purposes of a test, for the purposes of Dinam. He did this, he concealed the fact that this world really is Gan Eden, you see. And I mentioned that's the concept where the Besamikdash, the third one, comes down. And that is in Oilam Yetzirah, which is Gan Eden. And that's the Orishan, the Shechina of the third Besamikdash in heaven becomes a third Besamikdash here, you see. So the, really, this world is really Gan Eden, you see. And the world, therefore, is restored to being Gan Eden. And that's what God wants. It started from Gan Eden by Adam Harishim, the first man. And then it changed because of the sin of Adam and the subsequent sins of the generations. And it, it is restored to its original pristine state, which is Gan Eden. And that is why there's no more death, which it was before Adam sinned, there was no death. Yes, so you're really looking at a complete reversal, a complete restoration of Gan Eden in this world. And that is called the Messianic Era. And then that's not even Oilam Habo. Then, like I said, the world ends and it takes place a couple thousand years or whatever. Then in the 9,000th year begins Oilam Habo, which nobody knows what it is. It's a different type of existence. Ganadin, we can understand, even though it's, it is really beyond uh, our belief. But Ulam Habo, nobody knows because it's a different, it's a, quali uh, it's a qualitative 
difference in terms of the type of existence, you see. So in the end, that's what happens, you see. The world becomes Gan Eden, and it's over. But what we see from this shear is that the main person, apparently, that's responsible for this in the end of time is the agreement that was made between Mashiach ben Yosef and the Rabbana Shalom. And that's why it happens. So in a certain sense, uh, we have to recognize that, you see. And um, like I say, uh, all of this hopefully will happen very shortly, and uh, the Mashiach will come, and it'll be over. Any questions? So when Mashiach ben Yosef, how will we know that his suffering is like that he uh, he filled up whatever as much suffering he need that we needed? Like how how do we know that his suffering ended and that his wisdom starts? Because he will be released. That's how. And I mentioned the uh, pasuk in Yeshayahu, uh, in uh, in Yeshayahu, right? Uh, in uh, 48, uh, it says, Venisa, it says four expressions of growth. Now you understand why he has to grow. Right? It says, Hine Yaskal Avdi, behold, my servant will grow wise. Right? Wise. Yaskal. Seichel. That is the, and that is because, <clears throat> that is the suffering, which I mentioned. Because right now he has terrible inabilities to to think in a, the profound way that he can, and then it says Venisa, or it should say, it says Viorum, and he will grow, which means the Medrash says he will become greater than Avram Avinu. Venisa, and he will you know grow further. He will become greater in wisdom and knowledge than Moshe Rabbeinu, and Vagovah Mioid, and he will grow exceedingly. He will become more wise than the angels in heaven. You see? So you'll notice that the growth is in the area of Haskola, which is thinking, spiritual insights. And the question is why? Because that is also proof that the suffering that he bears is in the area of cognition, and that he's got to grow, which means he's been blocked. You see? So that's actually proof of what his suffering is. You see? And, um, yeah. That is the Pekida? Yes. Well, the Pekida is really the decision to end. And then, you know, um, how soon after that decision? Because that's the critical thing. That the Xero, the decree, has to end. Once that decree is gone, you see, then things happen. So in terms of time, it's hard to say time-wise, but maybe it's a day later. We don't really know. But the key of all of this is when will the Rabbi Hashem stop his decree? It's like by Shemais, where the Rabbi Hashem says, you know, I've seen the cries of the Jewish people, right? And pokoit pokaditi. And therefore the Rabbi Hashem says, it's over, and now I will begin actively the redemption. You see, 
You know, you never know. It could be that the Pekida already started, but it takes time for it to unfold. You see, we may actually be in the unfolding, which I believe to a certain extent is true. I think the Pekida happened, except we are in the holding how it unfolds, you see. And it's very possible that we are in that stage, you see. So, I have a question about you say about Olam Haba and the Messianic Era. Yes. Um, after Tehiyat HaMetim, everyone gets up and then begins yeah. the Messianic Era? Well, the Messianic Era really begins by Mashiach ben Yosef. Because I mentioned that the Beis HaMikdash comes down by God before Mashiach ben David. Now, obviously, that means it's a Messianic Era. But remember, the Messianic era consists of two phases. Phase one is to remove or to get rid of the bad, which is the nations of the world, their dominance, and so on. Then the second phase, right, is that there's no more evil, and now it's all good. So both are the Messianic era, you see, in that sense. But the real Messianic era obviously is Mashiach ben David, because that means all the evil has been removed, obliterated, and now it's only good, and we don't even have an idea of what that kind of good is. You see, it's just beyond belief. So, so really, they're both... Yeah? What? Once the year 6,000 hits... Well, once the year 6,000 hits... Right. Well, once the year 6,000 hits, that's the end of the Messianic era. Correct. So then the everyone, nature changes. What? Everyone, everyone already woke up. And if you woke up late, then you missed most of the Messianic era. But if you woke up early, because that's why it takes 210 years, depending on whoever wakes up, whenever they wake up. Right. Okay. Right. So now let's say it's now it's the year 6000. Everyone is up now. Now what? Because it's not Olam Haba yet, so now what? Well, the world, just like Mashiach ben Yosef is a change from Olam Hazer, which is the evil of the world, where the Sultan exists and he dominates and so on. That has to change into Mashiach ben David era, where everything is unbelievably righteous and holy. The same thing. There's no more evil, right? There's no Zoyamo, evil. But there is Geshem. Geshem is material. And if you recall, quite a while ago, I said that the world was supposed to be just Geshem, not Zoyamo. But the world turned right. into evil because that's what Adam originally sinned. So what happens is when Adam, when Sheikh uh, Ben David comes, then the world changes from a world of Zoyamo, which is gone. And that's why everybody gets up from the dead. And it becomes what's called Geshem, material. You see? So we now live in a material world without any Zoyama. So there's no death. There's no destruction, decomposition. It's all gone. Everything is incredible. It's fabulous. But from the perspective of a material world. You see? It's like you get up in the morning. 
right? And everything that happened to you is unbelievable. You see? But from the perspective of a material world, you have all the money you need, all the food, it's whatever is, you know, is uh, conceptualized as an unbelievable life you got. However, after 6,000 years, then that changes. So the Geshem begins to change where the physical material world changes itself into spirituality. It sort of like becomes the world where angels, you now become material that is angelic, you see, which means you cease to be the old person that's physical and you become material that is angelic, you see. And that takes, that transformation starts from the year 6000, which is the English year 2240, right? Which is 218 years from now, right? The world actually goes from a physical or material world into an angelic world. And it takes 3000 years to change because you have to go up 3000 years, three worlds. Ilim Yitzira, 1000 years. That's from six to seven. Then from seven to eight, the world changes into a greater angelic dimension, which is Olam Bria. That's from seven to eight. And then the world changes into a greater uh, dimension, which is even greater than the, the, the angels. It's called Olam Atzilus, which is really divine, you see. And that is from eight to nine. Then from 9,000 years, you change into something which we don't know what it is because it's neither a world that has Zoyama, it is not a world of material, and it's not a world of angelic material. It's beyond the Malachim. They don't even know what this is. But everybody now assumes a type of substance which is unknown, unheard of, incomprehensible, you see, and which cannot even be imagined. And let's call, let's call that world divinity, divine. Somehow you become a being that is divine, although it's not God, obviously. And that divine substance, whatever it is, remember, it's not even angelic, it's divine. That divine substance, like I say, is unknown. And that's the substance that you will remain with, that type of nature, for eternity. So we're looking at what? We're looking at different substance changes. So even angels are inferior to what you will be in future world. And it all starts, and I am now giving you the uh, changes, the Great differences, you know. Like I said, you know, starts off from Olim Hazer with Zoyama, where you have the satanic uh, influence, and that's the world we are now. That changes in the messianic era of Mashiach Ben David, where the world becomes Geshem, physical or material. Then, after six thousand years, that completely changes into a world of angelic material like Malachim. And then finally at the year 9000, 
that changes also into a material of which we have no idea what it is. So let's call that divine material, right? And, uh, and that's it. You remain with that type of material forever. And that material itself alters. Because you grow in Ulam Habba. You don't remain static. Every, I don't know what it is, second, nanosecond, day, you actually get greater and greater, closer to God, within the divine material that you are made of. Like I say, we don't know what this is. It's beyond us. I can just give you a rough sketch of what's going to happen. But there's a substantial difference between Sheikh bin David and 6,000 years afterwards. Like I say, because one is the world of material and the other one is the world of angels. You see? I think that was a good explanation. Rabbi, I have a thing. So, you know how you said that in 2240, that's going to be the year 6,000? And you Say that again. What? Hold on. What? Rachel, Rachel, one second. Go closer to the phone. Do you know how you said the year 2240 is going to be the year 6,000 and Judaism should hope in the Jewish calendar? Yes. And you think that Tichiyat uh, Hamashim is going to be like in eight or nine years? If you do reduce Shama, when Yaakov said reduce Shama, deducted to 10 years, that's 2030. It's uh, in eight years from now. Correct. Okonta, I told you the Zohar. I've stated it several times. That the Zohar says that Tchis HaMesim, which comes after Mashiach Medavid, right? Uh, there's an argument. One, uh, one uh, Amira says, or Tana, whatever. One other rabbi say it, it will take place 210 years before the end, which is the year uh, 2030. And then there's someone who says, no, it will happen 214 years before the end, which is 2026. So according to one in four years, and according to the other in eight years. Now, isn't that amazing? And by the way, that's why you are seeing the events, the historical events, with incredible acceleration. That's why. Exactly. So we don't have long to go. Oh, and by the way, if Mashiach ben Dover has to come before 2030, but that's after Mashiach ben Yosef, right? And everything that he's got. So that means within eight years, Mashiach ben Yosef has to appear. The Beis Hamikdash, the third Beis Hamikdash has to appear, right? And then he can come at the end and begin Tchir so in eight years, everything about Mashiach ben Yosef has to happen. Do you think that the Russia problem is something to do with uh, Mashiach ben Yosef and Gog Magog? It definitely does, yes, because we're not looking here at a local crisis. We're looking here at a crisis in the entire world, you see. Um... It's hard to know why. What, what, how does it fit into the scenario? But right now, but there's no question that it does. 
you know, yeah, I, I, you can, you, I, I can see certain scenarios that what it's going to do, if you want to hear one, yes. that it's, it's going to embolden Russia and China because they're going to take a look at what the U.S., how they reacted to Russia, right? And therefore, they're going to watch Russia and Putin is going to make tremendous mistakes, right? And it's going to embolden China also to make a tremendous mistake, let's say by taking over Taiwan. So that may, uh, what do you call, generate a tremendous backlash against Russia and China as major evil forces in the world. And that may, you know, gather the nations against Russia and China. You, you never know what that will do. Because we're looking at global events. So it's possible, like I say, that it may embolden both of these countries to make real mistakes. And that, like I say, may create a tremendous backlash of the world against these two countries. You see, so that's a major blow to evil. It's hard to know. That's a, that's, that's a possibility. I was thinking, like, now that the borders of Israel are open, is it like that Hashem wants us back home? Like, for a long time, we were as if we were punished to go. And now that it's opening, it's as if he's like, okay, now you could come back, now I want you back. Yes, the answer is yes. That's clearly what God does. He wants the Jews to come back to Israel. And for whatever reason... He restricted their entry as a punishment, and now he wants them back, and that's also why COVID is ending. That's what it seems to be happening, because COVID, as I said before, is receding. It's receding. You don't hear it in the news as often. The mandates are being removed, you know, the mandates, the masks, all of this. So it seems that that phase where the world has to suffer from COVID is ending, and that includes uh, the ability to enter Eretz Israel. The Russian wants Jews back, uh, which is very good, you know. So and the question, of course, say that again. You don't need the vaccine to be able to enter into Israel. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need the vaccine. Because the truth is, the vaccine doesn't help. Everybody, people got Omicron with or without the vaccine. So all they do is destroy their economy. But that's also a very good sign. The sign, which means that the next step, it's interesting to see where that will come from. But the next step, is that the government of Israel has to collapse. What is interesting that the Zohar says that the Arabs will rule Israel for nine months. So the question is, how can that be? <coughs> and the answer to that, it's very interesting, because there's a guy, Mansur Abbas, he has four, whatever, and he has unbelievable power because without him, there's no coalition. 
So that could fulfill that statement of the Zohar, you see. The fact that he, even though he has four seats, the fact that he has such power and such influence, maybe that is what the Zohar means, that the Arabs will control Israel. And the answer is he does control Israel. They need him desperately, you see. So that's interesting that that could be the way that that statement is fulfilled. But that's the next thing that has to happen. That the government of Israel has to collapse and there has to be somebody that will be the intermediary between Israel, the, the, uh, the secular Israelis, and the religious. There has to be somebody who will be the intermediary between Israel with what is now because they're all trying to destroy the Jewish religion in Israel, the whole Jewish character, and the Mashiach ben Yosef. I think that's up ahead. Because if the timetable is accurate, where 2030 is the time of Mashiach ben David, right, and COVID is receding, we now can go to Israel, the next critical thing, and like I mentioned, they have been given power, the heir of Rav, to be completely dominant, which they are. They're trying to change the laws of Kashras, Gerus, conversion, marriage, divorce, Shabbos, the draft. I mean, nobody's ever seen them wield power of such evil. So it's very possible that this will end. Something will happen where it will end. And therefore, they're gone. Because that decree that they can rule evil's last chance will be gone. But the interesting thing is who will take over? Who will now be the intermediary between the uh, heir of Rav and the Mashiach ben Yosef? Should be very interesting to know. I have a suspicion, but we'll see what happens. Uh, when did their nine months begin? When did their that the new? Um, I, I think in, I think in May or June, one of those months. Let's we are now in February. Oh wow! Yeah. <clears throat> what, what was that? She says everything is unraveling in the month of Adar. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Which makes sense, obviously. Yeah. <clears throat> you know. Yeah. I spoke about that, other, why there are two others and so on. It was last time. <clears throat> right. And the main thing is the other, Shani, which is the real other, because it's next to Nisan, hasn't even happened yet. So you never know. We may be seeing something that's right up ahead, especially Nisan, you saw. So don't be shocked if all of a sudden there's a major movement forward in the redemption process in a okay, month. Let's get our Mashiach clothing ready. Mashiach's coming on this Amen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if is, somebody's going to walk when... around. Well, I'm wondering if somebody's going to walk around in a costume as the Mashiach. That would be interesting. That would be interesting. I don't know if there is such a costume, but anyway. What? Not a real one? Yeah. She said, do you think that there's going to be a fake Mashiach? 
before? No. No, that's over. No. No. So that's the next that's the next sign. The fall of the Israeli government and uh, well certainly the fall of the Democratic Party. Because they are the Rasha Be'isov, tremendous evil party. They will fall, which hopefully will happen in November. And Biden will then be a, uh, a lame duck. He's over. And um, then things will happen, you know, especially the main idea is the air of Rav will collapse. So there's a lot of interesting things up ahead. You see. But anyway, things are happening with tremendous speed. It's amazing. You know. The days are going by very every week. It's just you feel like it's so fast. Yeah, it's amazing. Right. You know. Look, I, it's very logical to assume that the Bonshom wants to end this. You know, and I told you why. <clears throat> the real impetus is the exact same thing that happened by the Mabel. When a guy who would marry another guy had to write a ksuba, and also if he married an animal, you believe this? That sealed the fate of the world in the Mabel. I mentioned that Medrash many times. Well, guess what? That's exactly what's happening now. It is now not just acceptable, it is preferred to be deviant, you know, uh, gender-wise and sexually. It's incredible. And this will not reverse. It's over with. Because that Russia, the Supreme Court justice, actually made it constitutional that you cannot discriminate if some guy wants to marry a guy or a woman wants to marry a woman. I mean, this is now, this is now accepted throughout the entire United States and on the contrary, you know, you are called a racist or whatever, and America's a beacon to the entire world, and I hear it's all over Tel Aviv. It's what somebody was telling me. It's yeah. just incredible. So what is Tel the Russian... Tel Aviv is like the heart of, of it, by the way. It's, it's actually yeah, I know. a for all it's the gays. So. Yeah, I mean, but it's not just the gays. It's not just them. The people of Tel Aviv have accepted this. And yeah, it's become a, part of the literature. Part yeah, of like the... They have a, a huge parade that all the gays of America, like they all plan to go all the time. This is for years now. This is not just like recent. Uh, yeah. And they all, it's like the, the it thing. If you're gay, you want to go to this pride parade in Tel Aviv. Right. <clears throat> but it's not only that. It's <clears throat> like somebody was telling me that they took their kid to a bookstore in Tel Aviv, you know, to buy a book in English for their kid. So the only book that they had in that bookstore is a child's book talking about, uh, you know, about uh, gender, you know, that uh, two boys or whatever, actually, you know, lauding uh, the, the concept of, 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 of gender, uh, you know, gender mixture, combinations. This was a kid's book. So it, it, this insanity has taken over, 
you know, the entire culture of Israel, which is incredible. And that's bad. Why? It's bad enough that adults do this, but they are now trying to destroy the youth, the kids. That means the Chinuch is now all about, you know, uh, LGBTQ. And, I, 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 and God will not tolerate that. You see, it's not just adults, but it's kids in schools that are being taught uh, the curriculum, this curriculum about this, that it's acceptable and it's approved and it's natural. I mean, how long is the Rabbanu Shalom going to tolerate this? He's not. And I believe that's what we're looking at. It's the end. He's giving evil its due and then he's going to wipe them out. That's what you're going to see. Rabbi, do you think that do you think that um, our freedom, like we don't have freedom of speech, we can't rabbis can't even say about gender and without getting in trouble? Is do you think that we're going to get that back before yes. this happens? Look, America lives in fear. They have succeeded in frightening everybody that you will be called a racist. Or, uh, you know, uh, you know, whatever, you know. Everybody's afraid to say anything. They're trying to change the vocabulary. So everybody's frightened. They're afraid they're, afraid they're going to lose their job, you know, or they're going to become labeled a racist, you know, or a sexist or whatever. It's just incredible. But that's the rush of stuff. That's the Democratic Party, an incredibly evil party, you see. But when the zero... So they have been given their due, because the evil of Asaph, which I talked about, has been given permission to do their thing, and that's it, you see. And once it's over, it's over. They will be destroyed. So we don't even know what's going to happen, but I think they're going to really have a bloodbath in November, where the whole country is going to reject them, just slaughter them in terms of what they've done. Because they have made America unbelievably corrupt. They have destroyed the morals, the ethics of America, and the values. And God will not forgive them. He just destroyed them. So I think, of course, it will come back. 